everyone, it's Devin. Welcome back to Space Mummies from Planet X. Or greetings if this is your first time listening. I don't know. I suppose every episode is somebody's first episode, right? So, who's ready to hear me butcher the pronunciation of a bunch of elvish names? Because today I'll be discussing Amazon Prime's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power show. Which I think makes this The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing not only to the podcast, but also to the Killer Voice Studios YouTube channel, which is where I post episodes of this show along with helpful tutorial videos for those interested in getting into voice acting. By the way, my apologies for no tutorial video last week. I had some big life stuff going on. Also, there's going to be some changes to the update schedule for both the tutorials and the podcast, which I'll go over more at the end of the episode. It's likely temporary, but necessary for now. So this week, I finally saw a couple of horror movies that I've been wanting to watch for a while now. The first was the movie Barbarian, which is directed by Zach Kreger, starring Georgina Campbell, Bill Skarsgård, and Justin Long. The movie's about a woman that shows up to an isolated Airbnb, only to discover that there's another person staying there, supposedly an error of double booking. Because it's unfeasible for her to stay elsewhere, she ends up crashing there behind a locked door, of course, and discovers that during the night her cohabitant has disappeared, and that there's a secret door in the basement leading to a secret labyrinth filled with unsettling... things. At the time of this recording, it's on HBO, and I do recommend that you go watch it. It's one of those movies where going in blind is by far the best approach, and too much information is going to kill the surprise, so I recommend that you go watch it. I don't want to explain too much about what happens. It deals with power dynamics and urban decay, among other themes. I was trying to think of another movie that Barbarian reminds me of, because it felt familiar in a number of ways. The closest thing that I could come up with is the movie Midsummer, the way that it eases you into what seems like one scenario before taking just a hard turn and becoming deeply disturbing. Anyway, I recommend that you go see it. It's super good. Go, go watch it. The other movie that I finally managed to see was the movie Smile, which is the directorial debut of Parker Finn, and stars Sosie Bacon as this therapist who witnesses a horrific suicide and then becomes cursed. She ends up seeing a number of disturbing phantom people with rictus grins that hound her towards her own death after several days a la The Ring. It's a highly effective movie. From the trailers, I was initially going to write this one off. I was going to see it, but I didn't have high hopes for it. It ends up being pretty good. The execution, totally solid. Most of the scares are jump scares, but the movie does a great job of building tension with its choice of camera angles, which alternate between far away upside down, which uh, made my fiancé nauseous, and extremely close up all of a sudden. And then freaky sound design. Just the soundscapes in this one are really unsettling. Bacon's acting is especially convincing as she displays a gradually deteriorating mental state over the course of this surprisingly long film. For a horror movie, it's one hour and 55 minutes. Thematically, the movie is trying to make a number of statements. It's trying to make a statement about trauma, for instance, how trauma stays with you, how it's impossible to fully escape and is self-perpetuating. It's also trying to make a statement about mental illness, how it can spread through genetics and the isolating nature of coping with it. Smile, by the way, is also extremely similar. And I say extremely similar, I mean identical to the movie It Follows from 2014, 
which basically had the exact same premise, but people in that one get haunted by a being that stalks them, and it's spread through sex rather than witnessing traumatic suicide. The presence of It Follows greatly diminishes the impact of Smile, considering how extremely remarkably close they are. They're basically the same movie. I happen to think It Follows is better, but Smile isn't bad. Go see it if you want to be scared. I also did watch the finale of House of the Dragon. I liked season one. I thought it did a capable job of setting up the bloodbath that I expect is going to follow in season two. It was also interesting watching this. It aired at the same time as the episodes of The Rings of Power, so you basically had two different versions of fantasy to choose from. And House of the Dragon, clearly the darker, harder-edged one that focuses more on like political intrigue and that sort of thing, versus The Rings of Power's sweeping grandeur and and uh, boundless optimism and, and adventuring and that sort of thing. Uh, two very different takes on the fantasy genre. It was interesting to watch them side by side. Anyway, uh, that's what I've been watching this week, aside from binging The Rings of Power in preparation for the podcast. So let's get into The Rings of Power, starting with what is it? So simply put, The Rings of Power is a prequel story to the events that take place during The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It shows what led to the creation of Sauron's control ring, the one ring to rule them all, along with the 20 other magic rings, the titular rings of power that were created and bestowed to the elves, dwarves, and men for the purpose of seducing them to follow an evil path. So if you remember the Fellowship of the Ring in the Peter Jackson trilogy, the first like five minutes or so where it's just talking about the backstory to where the ring came from, that's basically what this show is about, but expanded into five seasons. The Lord of the Rings is set during the Third Age of Middle-earth, whereas the events of the Rings of Power take place during the Second Age, which is thousands of years before. It's not directly connected to the Peter Jackson movie adaptations of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. It's instead based on the appendices to The Lord of the Rings, When Amazon purchased the television rights to the books in 2017, there was this stipulation in the deal with the Tolkien estate that says that the TV series can't be considered a direct prequel to the movies, although it does draw a lot of its inspiration from them, especially in the realm of production design. But the further the development on the show progressed, the further it drifted from those films and started to become its own thing. So before we get into discussion of the actual show... I want to go back and let's review the source material and the man who created this elaborate world in the first place, J.R.R. Tolkien. So travel back with me to the first part of last century. John Ronald Raoul Tolkien, and that's what the R's stand for, um, he was a writer and philologist, and I had to look this up. A philologist is somebody that studies the intersection of history, linguistics, and literary criticism. It makes me wonder if they coined this term just for him, because that's basically his whole deal. He was also categorized as a writer of high fantasy slash epic fantasy. His most well-known works are obviously The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and to a lesser extent The Silmarillion. So he was born in South Africa in 1892 to a banker. At three, he ended up traveling with his mother and infant brother to England, at which point his father died in South Africa. And that sort of stranded the family in England because they didn't really have a lot of money with his mother's family. As a child, Ronald, and that's how 
His family referred to him as Ronald. He explored the countryside surrounding Sarah Hole where he lived, the various villages and landscapes that would later inspire locations in Middle Earth, specifically like Hobbiton and the area where the hobbits live. That's uh, pretty analogous to England. Tolkien was fascinated by languages and literature from an early age, unsurprisingly, and was just this avid reader. As a teen, he was introduced to the concept of an invented language by his cousins, and then he began constructing his own one after another and just really never stopped. At some point prior to 1909, he learned Esperanto, which is a very rare language uh, that not a lot of people knew how to speak. In 1911, Tolkien then went on a summer trip to Switzerland, and then hiking through the mountains inspired the Misty Mountains from The Hobbit. Soon after that, during the First World War, he initially delayed enlistment and caught hell for it, by the way, until after graduating college, then he was commissioned a second lieutenant and shipped off to France. He participated in the initial skirmishes in the Battle of Somme before contracting trench foot, and then was removed from the field right before a great number of his fellow enlisted men were killed, including several childhood friends. So two things about this. One, can you imagine the universe in which he didn't contract trench foot and instead died, and then we never got any of these stories? And then um, also it's pretty clear that his experience in World War I in the trenches directly inspired the scenes from Mordor and the bleakness there. It seems pretty clear. During his recovery, Tolkien began writing a mythological history of England called The Book of Lost Tales, which was a project that he eventually abandoned, but he was for a long time interested in coming up with this like mythological history of the real world, and England specifically. After the war, he went to work at the Oxford English Dictionary, specifically on the parts dealing with the etymology of Germanic words beginning with the letter W. He became an academic, translated a number of Middle English stories and poems, and then he took up a fellowship at Pembroke College, which is where he ended up writing The Hobbit and the first two volumes of The Lord of the Rings. So, Tolkien initially did not intend for The Hobbit to be published. That's not why he wrote it. He wrote it for his children. He wasn't seeking all the acclaim that it would later receive. What happened was a publisher caught wind of it in 1936, and then in 1937 it was published and quickly became massively popular with adults and children alike. Publishers started asking him for a sequel almost immediately, so he set about writing his epic novel The Lord of the Rings. It took him 10 years to write and was then published in three volumes from 1954 to 55. The Lord of the Rings is a darker story, aimed at an older audience than The Hobbit. Taken together, the books describe a series of adventures that take place in a fantasy realm called Middle-earth. This is a place inhabited by a number of races, including humans, elves, dwarves, hobbits, and orcs, and there are others. The Hobbit is about a hobbit, duh, named Bilbo Baggins, who is tricked by a wizard, Gandalf, into joining an expedition of dwarves that sets out to recover a lost mountain stronghold from a dragon, Smaug. They survive a number of perils, including trolls, goblins, spiders, and then at a certain point, Bilbo, by chance, finds a magic ring that bestows the wearer invisibility. The party manages to oust Smaug with the help of a nearby human town, but then tensions rise between the various factions and war seems inevitable between them. 
at which point Gandalf shows up with a warning that a great force of goblins is approaching, and the various factions join forces against the goblins, and along with some eagles, those wonderful deuce ex machina eagles that always swoop in to save the day at the last minute, they manage to defeat the goblins, and then Bilbo returns home having experienced a true adventure. That's The Hobbit. The Lord of the Rings follows the journey of Bilbo's cousin Frodo, to journey to a distant volcano, Mount Doom, and destroy the magic ring that Bilbo found in The Hobbit. The ring is an evil artifact created by a necromancer slash dark lord, it's not super specific, named Sauron during a previous age that can control others and corrupt the bearer. It's really bad news. A fellowship is formed between some hobbits, a dwarf, an elf, and some humans, and then the wizard Gandalf to journey to the aforementioned Mount Doom and destroy the ring. The party almost immediately splits up and has their own individual journeys, at which point they're able to come back together and make a last stand against the forces of Sauron, consisting mostly of orcs, while Frodo and his friend Sam travel through Mordor, reach Mount Doom, and successfully destroy the ring. Then there's this thing called the Silmarillion. So after The Hobbit, when his publisher approached Tolkien for a sequel, initially Tolkien started working on a series of myths and lore called the Silmarillion that the publisher outright rejected for being too overcomplicated, at which point he started work on The Lord of the Rings instead. The Silmarillion was later edited and published posthumously by Tolkien's son Christopher. It's a collection of myths and stories that are written in varying styles that describe the history of the world where The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings take place. It's basically a lore book. According to the Silmarillion, all of these stories take place in a universe called Ya and on a world called Arda that was created by supernatural forces that war during the First Age. There's a, several of these, like four of these ages. So during the First Age, and remember, The Lord of the Rings takes place during the Third these supernatural forces warred over some magic jewels called the Silmarils. The book describes the creation myth of the world, the war over the Silmarils, the destruction during the Second Age of the human city-state of Numenor, and finally the world as it exists during the Third Age, which is where the Lord of the Rings takes place. The Silmarillion is a bit of a disjointed read, but provides deep lore for the rest of the story set in Middle-earth. Middle-earth is an imaginary version of Earth's past, some 6,000 years ago. It's peopled by humans, dwarves, elves, hobbits, ants, orcs, and dragons, and then various other monster races. All of the other races, besides humans, over the ages, gradually dwindle and fade away until over time only humans are left, which explains why in this imagining of Earth's past, present day, there's only humans, because all the other fantasy races just faded away. So let's talk about these different races, which is not a great sentence to say, but um, yeah. anyway, uh, so humans are self-explanatory. Elves are immortal beings that are tall, beautiful, and deadly. Tolkien derived his conception of elves from ancient Northern European poetry. They live in the forest, have a deep respect and connection with nature, and are excellent archers. Dwarves are short, stout, race of human-like beings that live underground and mine ore. They are also expert masons and craftsmen. Tolkien derived his conception of dwarves from Germanic myths. They are fiercely proud, warlike, and they love gold and jewels. 
Then there's hobbits, which are sometimes called halflings, and those are small beings about half the height of a man that have large bare feet and live underground in hillside dwellings. They're shy, and they prefer to lead comfortable lives, but they're also capable of great acts of courage under the right circumstances. Tolkien claims to have spontaneously come up with the concept of hobbits while grading papers, but there are a few similar instances of small human-like beings in literature that predate The Hobbit. To say nothing of common folklore concerning creatures like gnomes, hobgoblins, and boggarts. Then there's ants, which are walking, talking trees. And then there's orcs, which are a vicious, ugly monster race that prefers darkness and willingly serves Sauron. They're the primary enemy force that threatens Middle-earth and are said to have derived from elves that were twisted and malformed by Sauron's corruption. Tolkien attributed the name orc to the poem Beowulf, and there's many similar instances of creatures like that in Northern European folk and fairy tales. Tolkien's works cover a number of themes. Obviously, there's the big one, the struggle of good versus evil. It's pretty straightforward. Again and again, different protagonists are tempted by power or riches to turn against their friends and embrace evil. There's a clear delineation between the good races, like uh, men, elves, dwarves, and hobbits, and then the evil races, like goblins, orcs, trolls, and wargs. It's all very black and white. It's about the way that power inevitably corrupts, regardless of good intentions. It's also about the power of friendship. Bilbo demonstrates steadfast friendship to the dwarves in his party and saves them all from ruin at multiple points in The Hobbit. All the members of the Fellowship of the Ring overcome their various obstacles thanks to self-sacrifice and are ultimately successful in their quest, despite being apart from each other for the second and most of the third volume of The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is ever a friend to the forces of good and tends to show up when things seem hopeless, again frequently with eagles, to turn the tide, and so on. It's also about death and immortality. This was actually stated by Tolkien as being the main theme of The Lord of the Rings. Immortality is the prize that's ultimately behind the temptation of power and riches, and a desire to establish a legacy that will outlive the people who attain it. Meanwhile, death is the constant threat that the heroes face, either during battle with the armies of Sauron, or via something more acute, like a giant spider or a balrog. Prior to the Rings of Power, there have been several adaptations of the Lord of the Rings in film. So first... There's the Rankin and Bass animated The Hobbit from 1977, a quirky, slightly ugly cartoon with offbeat folk music. Then came the animated 1978 Ralph Bakshi version of Lord of the Rings, which covered material from The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, but not The Return of the King, and made use of rotoscoping, which is a technique where live-action footage is traced over by animators, which leads to a smooth, if surreal-looking cartoon although they didn't use it for everything. I imagine it was expensive. Next was The Return of the King in 1980, another animated film from Rankin and Bass that covers the material from the third volume of the story. Uh, I've not seen it, but from the sound of things, it has storytelling issues and rushes through a lot of expository dialogue and introduces weirdly paced scenes. And of course, there's more folk music, a sign of the times. And then there were the Peter Jackson films, beginning with The Fellowship of the Ring in 2001, The Two Towers in 2002, and then finally The Return of the King in 2003. But then, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey in 2012, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug in 2013, and then The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies in 2014. 
Since the Jackson films, especially the Lord of the Rings trilogy, are most identified in popular culture with the Lord of the Rings, I think it's worth taking a second to discuss who Peter Jackson is and what made these films instant classics. So Peter Jackson, prior to the Lord of the Rings, was kind of an indie horror comedy director. He was born in New Zealand in 1961 and was obsessed with movie making from childhood, like hugely obsessed. He was a huge fan of stop-motion Ray Harryhausen animation, the TV series Thunderbirds, and the original King Kong. A family friend gave him a Super 8 camera as a child, and he began making short films. As a young adult, that's when he discovered J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings and was just a huge fan. He left school at 16 to work as a photo engraver for the Evening Post. And then after seven years, he had saved up enough money to afford a 16mm camera, which kick-started his film career. His initial genre, as I said earlier, was horror comedy. His first film was the movie Bad Taste in 1987, about aliens who travel to Earth in order to make humans food. Sounds kind of like Mars Attacks, I guess. He follows this up with the black comedy Meet the Feebles in 1989, which was a darkly satirical spin on the Muppets about a troop of puppets engaged in a number of vices and perverse deeds. His next movie was Heavenly Creatures in 1994, and this marked a turning point for Jackson as the film is a psychological drama about a real-life 1954 murder case focused on two teenage girls and the murder of one of their mothers. It examines the relationship between the two and the vivid fantasy world that they created for themselves to cope with their isolation and psychological trauma. This also marked the first collaboration between Jackson and Weta Digital, a company he co-founded, which did the special effects. It was also the film debut of Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky. The movie is highly acclaimed by critics. It was nominated for several Academy Awards that year, but it currently has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Following the success of Heavenly Creatures, Jackson with Weta created the big-budget Hollywood film The Frighteners from 1996. It's a supernatural horror comedy about a guy who can see spirits and uses them to scam people before he encounters the spirit of a serial killer that can murder the people around him. It stars Michael J. Fox and was apparently a huge flop, although I remember liking it. And then, in 1997, Jackson procured the film rights to The Lord of the Rings. It was a truly epic production that involved a team of 2,400 and 26,000 extras working on the trilogy over the course of five years. It was the first time that three movies had been shot back-to-back like that. Principal photography was a little over a year between October 1999 and December 2000, and it became the definitive interpretation of The Lord of the Rings on film, hands down. As with any transposition of the story of a novel to a film, countless decisions had to be made about what to emphasize, what to change, and what to omit. The novel has a structure that's largely unfilmable as written, with a a far more interlaced narrative, meaning that the various storylines are chopped up and all told at the same time rather than permitting the storylines to be experienced in digestible chunks. There's also a great deal of internal conflict, which comes across fine in a written story, but it's almost impossible to capture that on film. As a result, Jackson really embraced the visual language and imagery of Middle-earth and replaced much of the internal struggle with external conflict, meaning a lot more combat. For story structure, he arranged it so that the different storylines were told sequentially, more so than simultaneously, and omitted several sections of the story like the Hobbit's journey from the Shire to Bree, including their encounter with one Tom Bombadil, 
as well as the chapter of the scouring of the Shire towards the end of the story where the hobbits return home to find that the Shire is under attack by the forces of Saruman and use what they've learned from their journey to rouse the Shire to defend itself and defeat the wizard once and for all. The primary focus of the Tolkien version is Frodo's journey to destroy the One Ring, and while that's certainly at the core of the movie trilogy, critics have argued that the focus is shifted more towards Aragorn's heroic journey, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, to reclaim his throne. Certain characters are emphasized and given more screen time in the Jackson films like Arwen the Elf. In fact, her entire relationship with Aragorn is mostly told through the appendices in the book, but in the films it's front and center. Arwen is also deliberately made to be more of a warrior princess, whereas in the book she's far more passive. To be fair, there aren't a lot of active female roles in the Tolkien story. It's a reflection of the times, I suppose. Believe it or not, the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy is divisive among critics, depending on who you talk to. Tolkien scholars and diehard fans of the book consider it to be just a complete evisceration of the spirit of the story. They hate it. They argue that in trying to create a Hollywood-style movie, Jackson flattened the characters, lost all the emotional subtlety, and missed themes like free will and individual responsibility. That was the minority opinion, though. The Lord of the Rings movies were massively successful. Movie critics praised the epic scope of the production, the brilliant art design, the acting, the sheer depth of the world-building that Jackson managed to capture on film. It's no surprise the third movie, The Return of the King, won 11 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Art Direction. It made a clean sweep that year and tied Ben-Hur and Titanic for most Oscar wins. Jackson then went on to direct the remake of King Kong, The Lovely Bones, and then in 2012 returned to Middle-Earth with the first of a trilogy of films based on Tolkien's The Hobbit. Originally, Guillermo del Toro was supposed to direct The Hobbit, but he left after two years of pre-production. When Jackson took over, there was basically no time for them to plan anything out, which led to a disorganized frenetic shooting schedule and a self-described wing-it approach, which didn't work out well. It was originally planned to be two movies, but was extended to three basically due to insufficient planning, and as a result, the films just feel bloated and aimless at times. It affects the pacing and narrative cohesion. The production standards remained high, and there are definitely moments of brilliance and charm, but... By any real measure, the Hobbit trilogy pales in comparison to The Lord of the Rings. It's just not even close. And the critical reception does bear this out. The first two movies are in the 70s on Rotten Tomatoes. And the third film, The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies, is sitting at 59%. Ouch. Things then went quiet in Middle-earth for a couple of years. And then, out of nowhere, came an announcement. Amazon had won the bidding over TV rights to The Lord of the Rings in partnership with the Tolkien Estate. Like I mentioned before, the deal came with a bunch of stipulations. First, whatever Amazon made had to be a TV series, no movies, not even TV ones. The show had to be five seasons long, and it couldn't cover any of the same material from the movies. Also, the Tolkien estate um, slash family had to be involved. And Amazon would need to put up $1 billion, including the rights purchase. This ended up making The Rings of Power the most expensive TV series ever made. At first, Peter Jackson was in discussion to be involved with the series, but those initial talks went nowhere, and Amazon Studios started taking pitches for possible directions that the show might take. A number of prequel ideas were considered, centering around different characters like Aragorn, Gimli, and Gandalf. 
Eventually, future showrunners J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay made the pitch for a series set during the Second Age of Middle-Earth, a time that's briefly covered during the flashback sequence at the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring that describes the forging of the Rings of Power, the rise of Sauron, and the forging of the One Ring, and the final alliance of elves and men that went to war against Sauron and defeated him. This was also the period during Middle-Earth lore where the fabled island kingdom of Numenor in the Sundering Seas was lost, similar to the mythology surrounding the fate of Atlantis. So here's the production timeline. In fall 2017, the Amazon deal with the Tolkien estate was signed. Spring 2018, an initial report goes out that states that the series will be all about young Aragorn. Completely gets it wrong at the beginning. Summer 2018 is when they announce that Payne and McKay are going to be the showrunners. And then things go quiet for almost a year. In spring 2019, the setting of the show is now confirmed to be Numenor during the Second Age. Not the only location, but a significant one. Then, during winter early 2020, production begins shooting in New Zealand. And then, after filming most of the first two episodes, is then temporarily suspended during the initial COVID outbreak and doesn't resume till summer. Then, summer 2021, after like a year of rumors, a few details emerge about some of the elements of the show, including the Harfoots, the Hobbits, and the presence of orc concentration camps. Apparently those were like really significant because there just weren't any details coming out. So late summer 2021, that's when the production in New Zealand wraps. Winter, late 2021, it's confirmed that the show is going to draw from and expand upon the material from the appendices to The Lord of the Rings. In early 2022, winter, the name of the show is confirmed to be The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, and that's when the marketing campaign just gets cranked up. Summer 2022 brings us the first trailer for the show, which is received enthusiastically. And then fall 2022 is when the show premieres and released its eight episodes that comprise the first season. So here's a brief rundown of the plot elements, which I'll try to not get overly specific on, because I, if you're inclined to watch the show, I don't want to spoil it for you. I want you to go watch it. It's still fairly new. So the show begins by describing Galadriel's experience, which mirrors the overall experience of all elf kind, beginning in the idyllic land of Valinor before being drawn into a thousands-year-long war in Middle-earth against the great foe Morgoth and his servant Sauron, which led to the destruction of innocence and the widespread loss of life. With Morgoth's defeat, it would appear that the threat has ended in Middle-earth, and that the land can begin to heal, but Galadriel is still scarred by personal loss, anger, and this deep conviction that Sauron is still out there. For hundreds of years, she leads an expeditionary force in pursuit of Sauron, which during the course of events leads her to encounter a human shipwreck survivor, Halibrand, and sailors from the fabled island kingdom of Numenor, and they make common cause to return to Middle-earth in force and rid the Southland of orcs. Meanwhile, a young Elrond is tasked by the Elf King to assist the legendary elven craftsmith Celebrimbor in a new project, which prompts him to rekindle his long-standing friendship with the dwarven prince Durin IV. They attempt to procure a magical ore called Mithril from the dwarves that has properties desperately needed by the elves in order to prevent their extinction. At the same time, in the Southlands, a human settlement comes under attack by orcs, a foe once thought to have vanished from those lands, which in fact ended up burrowing underground. 
An elf named Arondir, who has been stationed at an outpost nearby for decades, defies orders from his company commander to withdraw and instead investigates these attacks and makes common cause with the humans who live there. Finally, the last major storyline concerns the Harfoots, a precursor to the Hobbit race that live a nomadic existence and keep to themselves. Nori Brandyfoot, a young Harfoot who yearns for a more meaningful existence, notices a meteor crash and investigates it only to find a mysterious humanoid stranger at its center. This stranger is largely mute and possesses extraordinary powers. Nori then takes it upon herself to help him out and determine where he belongs. So that's the gist of what the show is about in the first season. It's clear that The Rings of Power does take a number of cues from the Jackson films. The most obvious is that of production design. The Rings of Power is a truly lavish production that matches what the Lord of the Rings achieved with its own world building. The elven city of Linden looks similar to Rivendell, incorporating elegant organic architecture that exists harmoniously with nature. Khazad-dûm, the Dwarven Kingdom, looks nearly identical to what was portrayed in the Fellowship of the Ring, where they called it Moria. Costume design is likewise a close match. Both productions present an authentic world with its own visual history, a scope unmatched by most shows and movies. The characterization of the different races is largely the same. Elves are noble and aloof, dwarves are hot-headed and proud, and men are conflicted, pulled between the forces of good and evil. And then there are the Harfoots, Hobbits, a simple people without pretenses of being important to the wider world of Middle-earth that nevertheless keep getting dragged into significant events despite themselves. The music is very similar in both productions. Howard Shore, who composed the music for The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit films, created the main theme for The Rings of Power. The rest of the music for the show draws heavily upon inspiration from the Jackson films. Not everything is the same, though, naturally. The Rings of Power diverges from Jackson's films in a number of ways. For one thing, it's far more racially diverse, and I mean this in, like, the real-world sense, not the fantasy sense. Having every skin tone represented, regardless of fantasy race, makes for a richer, more believable world. Go rewatch the Jackson movies. They're super-duper white. The portrayals of Elrond and Galadriel are similar to their movie counterparts, but they have a lot more nuances and depth that the movie version lacked. Elrond in the show has elements of humor and sadness that display vulnerability. Galadriel in the show is driven by anger and obsession in a way that the movie version just wasn't. The orcs are characterized differently. In the Jackson films, they appear savage, unthinking, rage beasts, and they just lack personality beyond an immediate physical threat. In contrast, the orcs in the Rings of Power each have an individual personality that they express through speech and how they dress. A major theme of the show concerns free will and the choice to do good deeds or evil ones. It's a choice that is specifically put to individuals and groups of people over and over again during the course of the first season. It's also about how holding on to anger can threaten the people that you care about. Not only does it prevent everyone from moving on, it has the potential to turn you into the thing you're fighting against. It just perpetuates the cycle. It's also about whether people control their own destinies, or if the future is preordained. Early on, the Queen Regent of Numenor shares a vision with Galadriel about Numenor's destruction. It then goes on to support actions that may blow back on the kingdom in defiance of that fate. Elrond and Celebrimbor are tasked by the Elf King to find a way to use Mithril to halt a decay 
slash fading of the elves, something that would otherwise happen and cause their disappearance from Middle-earth. In fact, all the races of Middle-earth are explained to be destined to disappear in time except for men. Halibrand is said to be the fabled king that was promised to return to the Southlands and reestablish a kingdom, though he initially chafes against that destiny and tries to escape it, and so on. It's also about the bonds of friendship. There's Elrond and Durin, Nori and the Stranger, Galadriel and Halibrand, Arondir and Bronwyn. Time and again we're shown how friendship can bridge divides between people of different races and bind them together in fellowship and purpose. So the scope of the show is truly remarkable and does an excellent job of rendering the world of Middle-earth in vivid detail. The casting is perfect. Elrond, Durin, and Elendil are particular standouts. Although the pace of the story is a slow burn, the developments in the latter portion of the season amp up the dramatic tension and set the stage for a fascinating season two, potentially. It also feels incredibly faithful to the spirit of Tolkien's work. On the other hand, and I hate to say this, it can be kind of boring. The pacing issues are significant, with few meaningful stakes throughout much of the season. It feels like a lot of world-building without clearly defined consequences. This leads the sense that all of this is just building to something, but it's not super clear why the audience should care. This goes especially for the Harfoot storyline, which meanders somewhat until the very end of the season when the point of it all of a sudden becomes clear. The show introduces a lot of characters and locations, but frequently seems to assume that the audience has a decent knowledge of Tolkien lore so as to properly appreciate what's on screen, which I think is a mistake. Seeing as how most viewers won't fall into that category, a stronger effort needed to be made to convey the meaning behind those things. It's also not super clear how the rings make the bearers powerful, although they've just started to get into that by the end of the season, so there's plenty of room for that in Season 2 to be expanded upon. So far, the critical response to the rings of power has been largely positive. Most of what I was able to find in researching for this podcast was based on the first few episodes. I haven't found much that takes into account the entire arc of the season, though. They praise the show for its scope, casting, and musical score. And the reviews all note the deliberate pacing, but at least as far as the first couple episodes are concerned, they expect things to pick up as as the show progresses, which technically, I guess, is what happened. I've already spoken a bit about my opinion on the show, but in general, I think The Rings of Power is an incredibly ambitious and faithful depiction of the Tolkien mythos on screen. The attention to detail, the scale of it, the musical score, the pitch-perfect casting and acting... All of these things are commendable areas where the series shines. The story does over-rely on audience buy-in for obscure token details relating to the world-building, which makes sense. It's spun out of information contained in The Lord of the Rings, so I get, I get it. But for the uninitiated, which is going to include most viewers, the significance of certain elements gets lost. The writing could have done a better job to weight things so that the audience is made to care about the fate of Numenor and the significance of seeing a thriving Khazad doom, etc. In contrast, the Lord of the Rings films get straight to the point. Magic ring bad. Frodo needs to go on a journey to destroy it or it's going to empower a growing evil to once again threaten the land. The Rings of Power goes more like this. Sauron is still out there? Maybe? Orcs are up to something in the Southlands. The elves need Mithril or they're going to fade away. It's just way more unfocused. 
The pacing is also way too slow in the early episodes. It's not until around episode 6 that the plot starts to pick up, at which point I started to find myself getting more invested. This could all pay off in future seasons, though. Only time will tell. I wanted to wrap up this discussion about the Rings of Power by talking about the larger impact that Tolkien's works have had on the fantasy genre beyond direct adaptations of his work. Prior to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, fantasy meant folk tales, stories of fairies and goblins that attempted to imbue the real world with magic in order to teach lessons of morality. Tolkien invented the idea of epic fantasy worlds rich with history and culture that incorporate folktale elements in a realistic, or approximately so, way. After these novels, fantasy completely changed. Whether we're talking about written fantasy, where future authors would go on to create their own elaborate worlds with stories told across multiple books in a series, Dungeons and Dragons, with its structure and bestiary, directly expanded upon Tolkien's conception of the various fantasy races, RPG video games, which evolved the Dungeon and Dragon concepts into countless variations of fantasy, all of these things, and more, originate from Tolkien in one form or another. That's why The Lord of the Rings is so important. Why Tolkien matters. It gave the world a shared language to express our imagination. And that's the episode. I want to thank you for listening. So like I was saying in the intro... Things are going to change a bit in the near term for the update schedule because I'm about to start a new job, and I don't want to sacrifice any of the quality or drive myself insane while I'm trying to get acclimated to it. So up to now, I've been putting out content every single week, alternating between Space Mummies and the tutorial videos. It's important for me to keep up with both things, but I'm going to give myself a week of breathing space between each piece of content, but what that means for the podcast is instead of releasing an episode every two weeks, I'll be putting out a new episode once a month. For now. So this episode is coming out on November 1st. The next episode will be releasing on November 29th. And that episode will be... The Walking Dead! Because the show is ending! Yep, no more Walking Dead. There's definitely no spin-offs airing or anything in development on the horizon. The end. Or is it? I guess we'll see. See you next time.